Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. It's not often in local government that you have the chance to define an entirely new role for a city, but that's exactly what Chris Shorter is doing in Baltimore as its first ever city administrator. Working closely with Mayor Brandon Scott, Chris is responsible for turning vision into reality and essentially figuring out the nuts and bolts of creating a world-class city. Making this even more challenging is the background of Baltimore itself, having a checkered history of underinvestment and mismanagement. To begin, Chris is simply listening to both employees and residents. At the same time, he and Mayor Scott have a concrete action plan they're implementing, refusing to accept the status quo as good enough. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Shorter. City management can be one of the most orderly, traditional, and, and by the books professions, which is why I'm super excited for today's show, specifically to speak with the city of Baltimore's first ever city administrator, Chris Shorter. Having come up through the ranks in government across the US, from New York to DC and Texas, Chris brings, a, I think, a pretty unique operational background meshed with pretty strong ideological vision. So before maybe jumping into the nuts and bolts around leadership and governance, Chris, given that you've lived across more of the US than most, from the Midwest to Texas and, and now back to the East Coast, to begin the, the conversation, maybe could you share what are some of the through lines, the commonalities between these places, and then maybe in what sense are they each unique? Uh, well, Jack, let me say first, thank you so much for uh, having me. I uh, really appreciate being able to spend this time with you. I, you're right. I have had the pleasure of serving in so many different cities. Would have never imagined as a young person uh, when I felt like I wanted to go into public service and serve cities that I would have had uh, the opportunity to serve in so many different places and add value, I hope, in so many different ways. You, you know, each city has been unique and similar in, so, in some ways, I will say. There's certainly a commitment to, for me, to cities. And I'll say growing up in Detroit, Michigan, I realized as a very young person, 13, 14 years old, that I wanted to commit my professional life to making cities better places to live and grow and learn and work uh, and visit uh, and do business and have been able to, to stick to that really throughout my public service career. Part of why I wanted to as a very young person serve cities was because I felt like the city of Detroit level of service was uneven, that there was a that there was a, a real difference depending on where you lived in the city on your quality of life and, and sort of how services were brought to you and brought to bear within your neighborhood or community. So I grew up fully understanding that difference. I will say that in terms of similarities, I have seen the uh, the impact of underinvestment historical underinvestment in certain neighborhoods in every city that I have been able to serve in. Uh, and so this history of redlining, uh, historical underinvestments has certainly manifested itself through COVID in terms of how vulnerable populations within these cities uh, have had to work their way through and how cities have served them. So I, I would say that's a similarity really throughout the various cities. So it's certainly in New York, DC, 
Austin, Texas, and and now here in Baltimore. Uh, in terms of uniqueness, you well, every city is. I mean, I I would say I grew up professionally. I feel like uh, in Washington D.C. My first role was in New York City after graduate school, a professional role because of the various leadership positions uh, within the Washington, D.C. government. I feel like I learned so much about what it means to serve, especially vulnerable populations, and then to uh, to operate sort of in a citywide role, uh, helping to make sure that the city uh, remains clean and beautiful and that we are uh, picking up the trash and recycling and moving towards curbside composting, all of that really highlighted for me the importance of the everyday work of city government. Baltimore is this beautiful city with with a very historic look and feel, beautiful architecture, one of the oldest cities in the country, but certainly a, gov- a government organization that where we are doing considerable work around reform. So every every government and every city has been unique and happy to get into that as we talk. Awesome. Great answer. Yeah. In that in that previous answer, historical underinvestment is so, something you touched on and, and having an economics background, it's something I'm interested in because it's just something really obvious that we see. You take New York City, we take the train through Manhattan beside endless apartment towers worth billions of dollars. And then you get out into a crumbling subway station, leaking pipes, trash everywhere, pretty in your face and obvious. And I guess uh, a question to you, I'm not sure if you've thought much about this, but when did this underinvestment begin in the US's public infrastructure. And really what's driving it? Is it just a sense of individualism at the end of it? It's a great question. You know, what I'd say, Jack, in terms of the work I've done and even this, the way that I study cities, it's really been a focus on residents and what has happened in uh, residential communities. And when I say redlining, I mean the very clear structural underinvestment and unwillingness by our government to provide loans, to buy homes in certain communities, to sell homes in certain communities, to uh, repair homes in those same communities. And so the wealth that a resident, that a normal citizen would get from buying and selling their home or even leaving their home to the next generation uh, just was taken away from certain communities. So the impact of that over the last 60, 70 years has been that those communities have seen the least movement in terms of com- commerce and commercial development or economic development activity uh, because those homes have not changed hands uh, oftentimes. So what that has also meant is that when we deal with a healthcare crisis, which is what we we are living through now, and it's those same communities we have seen the most vulnerable move and live that be were the most vulnerable to COVID, and they are also generally speaking the communities where you see some of the shortest lifespans. Issues around health indicators like. Uh, chronic disease, you see higher levels of that in the same community. And so for me, when I come into a new city and look at how we are providing services from public works to to housing investments and investing with our seniors to, uh, to make sure that our seniors can age in place, uh, I'm certainly looking at, from an equity perspective, looking at how we as a city are treating those communities today. Because we have certainly not in Baltimore, in Austin, Texas, in Washington, D.C., we have not treated those communities fairly historically. You'd uh, you'd touched on the work of reform within 
Baltimore government. And unfortunately, Baltimore is one of those cities with a reputation, if nothing else, of mismanagement and corruption. And I saw it myself when I was telling a couple of colleagues about this interview and, and got the eye roll. So Mayor Scott said, your role in, in really his administration is to, I quote, give Baltimoreans a new experience. So what has the experience of Baltimoreans been historically and and what is that joint vision? I will say that it has, generally speaking, the city administrator role is not different in terms of the way it is being defined, not different than you would see in Washington, D.C. or in any other major city. This is still a strong mayor system uh, where the mayor is the chief executive of the city. Uh, and the city administrator, like Washington, D.C. and other East Coast cities and Midwest cities, uh, the city administrator executes on behalf of the executive. Almost, I would say, you would think of uh, in a corporate setting, a chief operating officer. And so in Baltimore, we have had, we have seen a very turbulent political, political change. I'll say it that way, very turbulent political change. And what that has meant for our government, our government organization is that a lack of stability. The governments that are performing the best today are governments who have had stability, governments who have had the ability to invest in their workforce, training, development, who have clear policy and procedure, administrative procedure, who have information technology tools to help store information and help to make government uh, easy, if you will, for resident. Baltimore City, because of the turbulent, has not had the ability to stabilize in that way. The mayor's vision around incorporating a city administrator or chief administrative officer is consistent, really, with what we have all what we've seen decades ago in other cities. And so, I'm certainly excited to be to to serve as the first city administrator. Significant work to do. I believe that the workforce will benefit from significantly from having a city administrator structure, and that the city will see the benefits as well quickly. And so, we are. I'm happy to talk through that sort of as we go in this discussion. Uh, but we are certainly seeing some stability in the way that we do business, government business, some great accomplishments already. Awesome. And that's actually a learning lesson for me because I wasn't aware that I thought the city administrator and city manager roles were pretty much synonymous. I didn't realize that Baltimore was still a, a strong mayor city. I thought it had completely switched. So that's that's news to me. And, and coming into a completely new role that really hadn't been, I guess, uh, formed before, inevitably you're going to have to disrupt the status quo in, in some way or other. So I'm curious, what have some of the hardest conversations been that you've had to have internally already? And how do you think about navigating difficult conversations? Yeah, thanks, Jack. And, and I'll, I'll explain a bit more in terms of a form of government in that for your listeners, there is a city manager council form of government in Austin. When I was in Austin, Texas, that is the type of government I was working in as the assistant city manager, where you have a city manager who is the chief executive that works with a mayor and council. That city manager is hired by the mayor and council. That mayor and council oversees his or her performance. So they guide policy and ultimately make decisions about the direction and vision of the city. But it is the role of the city manager to uh, to execute on that vision and make long term strategic 
decisions about what makes sense for that government. It operates to a large extent like like a corporation or corporate organization. In a system with a managed with a mayor council form of government where the mayor is the chief executive, such as the case in Washington, D.C. and here in Baltimore, the mayor is the chief executive and engages council uh, in terms of legislative and and policy policy work. The city administrator, and this is the role that you know, that I'm playing here, it serves as more in of an operator for the government, day-to-day operations in the government. In terms of the disrupting of the status quo, there is considerable work to be done by way of re- accelerating government reform. We are certainly in the midst of that. I will say that it has been a delicate balance for me personally to come into the city because there's a need to acknowledge uh, the great work that we do every day as a government organization. I don't think we do enough of that here in Baltimore City. I've seen and met uh, phenomenal public servants who who really sacrifice in many ways to make sure that our city is continuing to move forward and our city government is doing its part uh, in that process. On the other hand, I have also been stunned uh, by the lack of investment, if you will, in some of the city systems and procedures that it takes to run a government. We are certainly on our way in terms of uh, in terms of getting some of the work, the, the foundational work done that it will take to, to make sure that our government is capable of serving a world-class city. I'm very optimistic and am excited to, to work with and for a mayor who is also optimistic about the future of Baltimore. What I see as my mission is to make sure that our that our government is uh, well-suited and is capable of supporting a world-class city. As we grow as a city, as more families and adults and young people move into Baltimore, we want to be the kind of government that uh, serves the city well. And again, considerable work to do to make sure that we are that we are doing that. So as you think about reforming and, and turning Baltimore into a world-class city, getting into, I guess, the operational weeds as you look around at the government into a government that has traditionally been uninvested in, and, and I guess as a result has underinvested into the community, if you wanted to maybe distill into just the the small twenty percent that's going to make the biggest impact into how Baltimore is run, what would that twenty percent be? That's a great question, uh, Jack. And you know, I will say in every in every city I've had the privilege to serve in, there has been a clear vision for where the city is going, a vision that you can point to and say, these are the things that are important to us as a city. This is why we are unique as a city and as a location, as a destination, and why we are a city of choice. Uh, I will say in, in coming to Baltimore, my initial advice was, oh, we, we need a strategic plan. Because you would, in a city like Austin, Texas, you know, where you have a council manager form of government, a much more clear path to developing a strategic plan. And that's sort of the environment I'm coming to Baltimore from. What I realized early on was that we are not yet in a place where an appropriate strategic planning process is possible. Uh, We have significant work to do to build trust, Uh, trust that we can get the work done. We can make promises and then hold to those promises. And and and, uh, and so what instead we've done, we've developed a strategic action plan. Uh, and so I'll point your listeners to the mayor's website. There's an action plan tracker with very clear goals and actions uh, that we plan to get accomplished over the 
first term, focused on things that every city would value and find important, and that is clean and healthy communities, equitable neighborhood development, public safety, prioritizing young people, and finally, responsible stewardship. Those guiding principles have been foundational because what it does is it makes clear these are the things that are important for us to uh, to focus on. And these are the very clear actions that we are going to, based on theory, our theory of change, uh, that these are the actions that we're going to focus on to make sure that our city is moving in the right direction. So that has been pretty important. Uh, and I will say that we just in terms of implementing and making sure that our government is focused on those actions has been a learning experience. I'll also say that there's a real need and a real focus on transforming and accelerating this sort of idea of government reform. There are a number of reform efforts underway, uh, all sort of being managed by various leadership teams, depending on the type of reform and the agencies involved. Uh, and I'm thinking about the investments we're making in, in vacant homes around the city, the procurement reform work that was announced last year, and that's well under underway. We are doing significant work to, to help digitize some of the government services that we do uh, to make sure that we are cutting edge here here in Baltimore. Uh, and we've also done what a lot of cities have are also doing, but I think we've done it in a unique way in that we are utilizing our ARPA dollars, our American Rescue Plan Act funds, uh, to really engage the community about the future of the city. Uh, and so just a few things uh, that will ultimately have long-term impacts on the capability of our government to be its best. Something that interests me as you were talking about the, the strategic plan and the, the previous answer is in the council manager form of government, it seems like as much of the job is managing that relationship with elected officials as much as it is actually carrying out that long-term strategy in, in no small part because the city manager obviously serves at the pleasure of council. And in Baltimore, it's a, a little bit different. So in the city administrator role, does it feel like you're solely responsible to Mayor Scott, who then has to contend with council, which I believe is technically how it should be, should be said with a, a pinch of salt, or is reporting to and answering to the entire council an inevitable part of your role, even if it's maybe not an explicit responsibility? It's a great question, Jack. I'll say that I am hired by the mayor as the chief as the chief executive officer of the city. I am not as useful to the mayor if I'm not doing my part to engage council, and I'm certainly not as useful to council. We and so it is important that I'm clear about the uh, sort of line, if you will, between the executive and the legislative. Uh, but what we are trying to do is build uh, the kind of city government where we are working in a much more seamless way. And so I am certainly doing my very best on behalf of the mayor to engage uh, council, uh, council and council colleagues. That said, I do follow the mayor's lead uh, in terms of the relationship ultimately between the executive and the legislative uh, because of the nature and in form of this government. You'd mentioned earlier as well in, in reforming Baltimore government that a large part of that comes down to engaging a citizen base, a resident base, A, to really understand their priorities at a really granular level, neighborhood to neighborhood, but also to begin to rebuild that trust and that engagement that may have been lost over, over decades of underinvestment. So as you think about going out and talking to the community, what are those channels and methods that you're 
maybe relying on to ensure that you're hearing beyond just the same few loud voices into the actual resident base that, hey, maybe they work two jobs, single mother doesn't have time to come down to a council meeting and provide their thoughts, but it's still a really important voice to hear for the future of the city. Yeah, that's a great question, Jack. And you're absolutely right. There are residents who come to the commu- who come to organize community meetings, who uh, engage government at council meetings, who are active and have remained active over time. In other cases, you have residents who engage the government but wouldn't typically come because of all kinds of reasons come to a community meeting. Uh, we do and have not in years, but I will say that we are reestablishing community surveys uh, where we do annual. Uh, very regimented with a third-party vendor, work to better understand quality of life issues in the city from residents. And we work with vendors who do this other cities and who have laid out sort of an approach, if you will, to doing it. We also leverage our 311 system and other call centers to engage residents and get their feedback. And so if you call 311, uh, here in Baltimore City uh, at the start of next budget year, uh, starting on July 1, you will be prompted just like you would if you were calling uh, a cell phone company. Uh, you will be prompted to, at the end of that call, to take a few minutes to provide your feedback on how the call went and uh, in other aspects of city services. We get hundreds, I'm sure you can imagine thousands of calls every month uh, to our 311 system and to other uh, call centers within the city. And so again, a good resource, a good way of getting information and feedback from residents. I'll also say that I we don't just rely on community meetings. We do all kinds of community walks. Uh, we are relying on agencies to do uh, community feedback sessions. I think about our climate action plan and the work that's being done to uh, to do outreach to communities uh, of color and other communities that don't typically engage government around climate action. So, you know, I, I'm just giving a few examples, but there are a number of ways now that government uses and that we are using here in Baltimore uh, to make sure that we're getting good, consistent feedback from broad segments of our community. Awesome. Love hearing that. Unfortunately, time is is of the essence, so we have to run to the last closing question. Um, it's the same as always here on City Hall Stories. It's pretty simple. Chris, what is one accepted truth of local government that you believe in your experience is incorrect? Jack, I, I would say that uh, there's this sentiment that government employees are somehow less talented than employees in other sectors. And I just don't believe that's true. Uh, we get some of the most talented young people and talented professionals working on behalf of cities and other levels of government. Uh, People who are committed, so committed that they come out at night and on the weekends voluntarily to serve uh, and are extremely dynamic. So I would say that that certainly has been consistently throughout my career, a comment or some thinking that I've had to kind of uh, disagree with. I just, it is not my experience. I've just been blown away by uh, the commitment from uh, from our government employees across the board. Yeah, and and working in the private sector, but with the public sector all day, every day, I, I could totally agree that, yeah, the level of dedication and commitment to the work easily at least matches what is reflected in the private sector. So Chris, massive, massive appreciation for your time here today. I think um, this is a story, the story of Baltimore that our listeners are going to want to stay on top of 
in the coming two, five, ten years to really see uh, another beautiful city on our East Coast. Thank you so much, Jack. It's been a pleasure to kind of talk with you. I, I'm hoping to, to come back soon and I'll be able to talk in a much more robust way about what we actually have done, not what we will do. <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to it. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.